the situation is becoming more perilous for Taiwan because Taiwan is caught in the middle of all of it. Hello and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo, a regular podcast that brings you news and views from around the world. If this is your first time checking out our podcast, you might also enjoy some of our past episodes, which are all listed on our blog site at pwnilo.com. In an increasingly complex global landscape, sensitive flashpoints often don't make mainstream news headlines until a major event occurs. Such was the case in East Asia when former Speaker of the US House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in August of 2022. What followed was one of the biggest ever military exercises in the region, carried out by the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, the military wing of the Chinese Communist Party. While the initial live-fire drills lasted four days and effectively constituted a blockade on Taiwan, PLA military incursions into Taiwan's Air Defense Identification Zone, or ADIZ, have been steadily ramping up over the past few years. In this episode of Perspectives with Nilo, I'm chatting with Itamar Waxman, journalist with Radio Taiwan International, about China's persistent grey warfare tactics or salami slicing against Taiwan, and how this is raising tensions in the region. I first asked Itamar if 2022 was a record year for PLA incursions and how Taiwan is responding. I'll start by saying that it was definitely a record year in the number of incursions. I think first we should really explain what the ADIS really is, right? So the ADIS is the Air Defense Identification Zone. And this is a zone that Taiwan and other countries, though not most countries, have actually established where they basically ask any aircraft that enter it, either civilian or military, to identify themselves, right? So I think a lot of uh, international media reports and individuals around the world misunderstand what the ADIS is. It is not actually the territorial airspace of Taiwan, uh, but rather just an area that the Taiwanese military has established um, on their own, right? It is. It has nothing to do with like international law or, th- or something like that. But having said all of that, the, there was a record number of incursions into the ADIS last year. And I would say that is because tensions continue to rise in the Taiwan Strait, and especially because of, uh, you know, now former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the country in August. Um, so I guess, how did these incursions start? For the most part, they began in 2016 when uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the current president, came to power And uh, almost from the beginning, the authorities in Beijing uh, did not like her and they did not like her position towards cross-strait issues. Um, There's not a lot of trust between Beijing and the DPP, which is uh, Tsai's party, because the party traditionally has been the more pro-independence party. I mean, in the 90s, we, we could say that was a lot more true than it is today. But I think today... Maybe a bigger problem is that there are factions that are more pro-independence and the DPP tends to be a lot more, uh, uh, it tries to be closer to the United States and Japan, right? So the ADIS incursions began in 2016 and I think generally a way we can understand them is they are a threat from the government in Beijing that um, we don't respect your authority, right, to the Taiwanese, to the Taiwanese government, 
Um, and if we wanted to, you know, we could get you, right? We could invade or use other kind of um, other kinds of violent methods, really, to get what we want from the situation. But it is important, though, to remember what these incursions are. If you look at the map, generally they enter in the southeastern corner of the Aedes, you know, 100 kilometers away from Taiwan. There's never been a, a military incursion that ever went over Taiwan's airspace or really came close in any kind of way to Taiwan itself. Except but, uh, the military drills in, in, in August after Nancy Pelosi visited. There were yes, some, that's right. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that is the big exception. Yeah. Um, though the, the warships came closer to Taiwan's territorial waters. Mm -hmm. The closest they came was about uh, 10 kilometers away from the territorial waters. So quite close, right? But not quite there. Um, but the regular incursions that occur from aircraft, from PLAF aircraft, um, those are usually very far from Taiwan. Um, and it's important, I think, to understand, you know, I, I think your listeners might want to think, well, what's going on here, right? Is, are, is this a real threat? You know, what kind of threat is this? Because for a lot of observers in Taiwan as well, they see this as very performative, right? Because a real threat would be like the live fire drills that happened in August where, you know, the PLA Navy came very close to Taiwan's territorial waters. They established four major uh, operational zones around Taiwan that they basically uh, simulated a blockade of the island. That's a serious threat, right? Mm -hmm. The PLA Navy was showing at that moment that uh, we could blockade Taiwan if we want, if things come to this moment, right? Um, but regularly, you know, these incursions are happening every single day. Uh, they're an opportunity for the Taiwanese military to basically say, you are, you know, who are you? Identify yourself. And there have honestly, there's, there's been some audio of, you know, these absurd interactions between uh, PLA pilots and, you know, Taiwanese military personnel. Um, just a, a lack of respect from the PLA side. And uh, I, I think there's a very strong performative element to it, yes. And, and does anything happen any time one of these incursions is detected? I mean, do, do the Taiwanese Air Force have to launch or scramble yeah. a response? Yeah, so they, they have to scramble their own aircraft in response. So this has actually been <laughs> quite a drain on the Taiwanese Air Force uh, resource-wise. I mean, they, they're having to spend hundreds of million US dollars uh, every year just paying for the maintenance and fuel costs of these uh, scrambling operations, which is a lot because, you know, Taiwan's military last year spent um, about 14 and a half billion US dollars, right? So yeah, they do. But I will say that if we're talking about Taiwanese society, there is not much of a response. Um, it, Taiwanese people in their day-to-day -day lives are not aware of, the, they know these incursions occur, but they are not watching the news to read about them every single day. Um, they're not major news. And people do not see them, I would say, as serious threats uh, to their daily lives. We regularly hear from the CCP and their state media propaganda that, uh, you know, they, they want to maintain peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, what excuses do they have for these behaviors then in, in terms of all these military aircraft approaching Taiwan and drones as well? I believe in 2022, they started launching drones around the island, military drones around the island. So, I mean, what is triggering them to take these actions, which 
clearly are not uh, maintaining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Sure. Uh, real quick, the drones actually, you might be referring to some drones that were flown into the airspace of Jinmen Island, which is one of Taiwan's outlying islands. Uh, it's very close to to, to China, to, to the city of Xiamen in, in Fujian province. Uh, actually, it seems that those were not military drones. Those was actually probably civilian drones, but they still did enter Taiwanese airspace and they were shot down for that reason. But what is the PLA saying? Why are they trying to maintain stability with these actions? Basically, these incursions, they are generally responses to some kind of move Taiwan would make that brings it closer to especially the United States, but not exclusively, right? Uh, China's policy is to isolate Taiwan diplomatically. They do not want Taiwan to operate in the international arena as a normal country, uh, in the sense that they do want they do not want Taiwan to have normal diplomatic relations, ambassadors in other countries, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because of. Who knows? This could, there's a host of different reasons why they may not want this, right? The main one they say is because they claim that Taiwan is part of Chinese sovereign territory. Um, and so, for example, we saw a huge uptick in ADIS incursions in August of last year when uh, former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi came. And so this demonstrates the pattern, which is that the Chinese see Nancy Pelosi's, uh, or saw, I should say, Nancy Pelosi's, visit as destabilizing the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. The status quo being that uh, there should be no high level official interaction between the United States and Taiwan, right? Um, this was US policy actually for a long time, basically until the late Trump administration when the State Department got rid of the ban on high level US officials and you know even diplomatic personnel meeting with their Taiwanese counterparts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the Chinese side, they see any change to their perception of the status quo as destabilizing the Taiwan Strait. And therefore they use these incursions as a way of sending a message to Taiwan and the United States, as well as other actors in the region, that they are very serious about the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, especially I should emphasize it, their, their perception of the status quo and that they are willing at the end of the day, if it comes to that, to use military force to maintain that situation. They've also, apart from the response to Nancy Pelosi's visit, I noticed they're also conducting joint military exercises with their allies. So we, we saw uh, news at the end of December where uh, Russia and China have uh, joint military exercises in the East China Sea, uh, dubbed the Maritime Cooperation 2022. Um, Russia's statement said that the main purpose of the exercise is to strengthen naval cooperation between the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China and to maintain peace and stability in the Asian Pacific region. Here we come again with peace and stability. Um, in, in Ireland and in Europe here, we're very familiar with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia's involvement there. Um, but um, again, is, it, is this something that gets a lot of attention among the Taiwanese public or in, in the region, these type of military exercises? So these exercises definitely do get attention here in Taiwan in the major papers, in the press. I don't know if the average person is paying attention to them necessarily, but 
that's a whole nother question, really. Um, I will say officials here are definitely taking notice of this. Um, but I will say that this specific example, and if we're talking about military drills in the Pacific um, and in East Asia specifically, um, they are a sign actually of, I think, Taiwan's difficult geopolitical position in which that the Taiwanese are operating for their own interests and for their own country, but they are also caught in wider showdown between two powers, the United States and China, as well as other nations in the region and in the world who are involved in some kind of way. So uh, this large naval drill that the Chinese and Russians held in December um, are part of uh, regular drills they have been holding since 2012. Uh, of course, last year's was the largest on record. And it comes actually part of a, a, a trend of the strengthening of military cooperation between Russia and China. There's uh, uh, last year before uh, you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, the Russians and Chinese started talking about you know a, a no limits relationship between both of them. And so definitely as they see themselves squeezed by the United States and NATO and other actors in the region, uh, they are coming together closer. Um, I'm not sure these, this specific drill in December was aimed at Taiwan. I mean, but because it was aimed at the rising, you know, tensions in Asia, uh, Taiwan is, of course, included in it. Um, I think these drills were especially a response, though, in, in November, just a month before those, uh, the United States held uh, also its own military, uh, its own naval drills in the same region uh, with, uh, I believe it was Japan, Australia, and the United Kingdom, right? Uh, so there's a general trend of um, rising tensions in the region, and these drills are really more of a manifestation of these rising tensions rather than maybe a cause, we could say. Um, I will also add that it's something that's interesting is the language, right? That the idea that these drills are maintaining peace in the Indo-Pacific, right? Uh, but the United States actually uses the same language when it conducts drills in the same region, right? So there's this understanding, I think, from both sides. This is the language of international relations and diplomacy, right? And security, uh, that that um, by demonstrating our uh, our capabilities, by demonstrating the resolve of the people on our side, right, that we are maintaining peace, right. So I don't know if these drills um, on the U.S. side help Taiwan, and I don't know if the drills between China and the and the and Russia are especially aimed at Taiwan, but. They are definitely demonstrating that tensions are rising in the region and that the situation is becoming more perilous for Taiwan because Taiwan is caught in the middle of all of it. And it seems like it's the, the rising tensions that you refer to, are, other countries are feeling them as well. We see uh, Japan, for example, are taking uh, very definitive action uh, recently. Uh, and uh, Pr Prime Minister Fumio Kishida visiting his G7 partners in advance of the upcoming summit. Tell us a little bit about how Japan are reacting to all this rising tension. The Japanese are definitely increasing their defense posture um, towards China and they are reinforcing their relationship with Taiwan. 
especially in the last few years. I would say this trend started with the, uh, well, now I guess he was two prime ministers ago, uh, the now deceased, you know, uh, Shinzo Abe, who uh, really later in his, um, in his term or in his governments uh, was beginning to become closer to Taiwan. Um, now the Japanese have, I'll say that, for example, the ruling party in Japan, the Liberal Democratic Party, has very strong ties with Taiwan's ruling party, the DPP. They have now had, I believe, four years of regular um, two plus two meetings, right? So high level officials from both parties will meet. It's a party to party exchange, right? Um, which demonstrates how, at, to what level the relationship between two countries, the two countries is reaching. And definitely the Japanese, they're the largest issue for them when it comes to their own uh, confrontation with China is Taiwan. That's for sure. Um, and they last year, the Japanese government announced that they were actually going to begin by, well, I guess this had already been occurring before, but they officially announced that they were going to double their military budget and also begin to advance, uh, acquire advanced weaponry that could be utilized in offensive purposes. We have to remember that Japan's uh, post-World War II constitution, which was written by the United States, um, cre creates a pacifist country that is only supposed to have a self-defense force, right? So we see the remilitarization of Japan coming at this moment where tensions are rising in East Asia. Um, and Japanese, uh, uh, major Japanese leaders, for example, Shinzo Abe himself, after, I think this is actually very important to remember, after he had left power, was widely saying in the media that, you know, a, a Taiwan contingency, as in an attack or uh, against Taiwan, or maybe not even an attack, maybe just a blockade of Taiwan, uh, would be a contingency for Japan itself. This is actually a phrase that has now been echoing in Taiwanese media for months and months and months, years now since he has said it. Uh, so there's definitely a change in posture. Yeah, and, and for people who are not familiar with the geography of the region, uh, Japan's most southern island is actually quite close to Taiwan. It's just a few hundred yes. kilometers away. So yeah, they are if, very yeah. close. Yeah. Uh, if we want to speak strategic, you know, strategic speak. Yeah. Um, so the Ryukyu Islands, which are the southernmost islands um, that are part of the modern Japanese state, uh, they are very close to Taiwan. You know, Okinawa, the largest of these islands, is I believe it's maybe 150 kilometers uh, east of Taiwan. So it's very close. Um, it's actually a very big tourist destination for Taiwanese people because it is so close. Um, and Japan actually has a lot of defense resources in that region as well as the, and the United States does as well. So, uh, Japan, that area is called, that, that area is part of the second island chain. And then Taiwan is part of, is part of what is called the first island chain, which are the islands that are closest to the mainland of East Asia, right? So strategically speaking, um, there's this confrontation occurring between, on one side, you know, uh, some political forces in Taiwan, as well as Japan and the United States, and on the other, uh, China, right? There's a confrontation over this first island chain. But yes, yeah, so if something happens to Taiwan, if, for example, 
Taiwan was actually captured by the PRC, um, that would create a huge strategic problem for Japan. Taiwan is also taking action itself. Uh, it recently uh, is looking to extend its military conscription, something that has been considered for a while, but only recently acted on. Can you tell us what's been happening with that? Sure. Um, I've actually been lucky enough to do uh, some, some reporting on this issue over the last year. Uh, we have to return a little bit to the history of conscription in Taiwan. So uh, from when the government of the Republic of China escaped to Taiwan after, the, the, after losing the Chinese Civil War in 1949, uh, they established a two-year conscription period. So every male of 18 years old had to serve uh, two years in the Taiwanese military, three years in the Navy um, and in the Air Force. So over the reason that this that things were like this was because tensions were extremely high and the prospect of an invasion by the PRC were extremely high as well. Um, actually, I don't know if this might be too much history for your listeners, but you know, uh, Mao actually intended to invade Taiwan back in 1950, but at the end chose to divert his troops and military resources to Korea during the Korean War, right? So uh, the, you know, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government, the ROC government in Taiwan uh, knew about these plans, knew that this possibility was there, and that is why conscription existed. But what happened was that beginning the late 80s, when, te when tensions really fell, in the Taiwan Strait, and relations between two, the two sides began to improve significantly, uh, as well as Taiwan democratized, right? And the military had always been um, identified with the, you know, the KMT dictatorship, uh, that the public began demanding a reduction in the conscription period, or actually its revocation. So this, this process of actually reducing the conscription period began in the early 2000s and by 2018 it had been reduced to just four months so basically just a four month every taiwanese male has to do a four month training um but then of course this is back in 2018 right and so only a few years later tensions were starting to rise you know sig significantly in the taiwan strait again and i would say that the talk had been there but it really began to um, heat up in the Taiwanese public after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February last year. It was at that moment that it seems that the Taiwanese public, as well as um, you could say uh, political elites here, understood that you know if it could happen there, it could happen here as well. And so it was at that time, due to public pressure, you know, polls were coming out constantly saying that. Over 70% of the public supported extending the conscription period back to a year. That the government announced that they would review their conscription period policy. And then in December of last year, before the end of the year, uh, the president, President Tsai Ing-wen, announced that uh, conscription would again be extended to one year beginning in 2024. But not only this, right? So it's important to also... Uh, remember that part of this overall kind of military preparedness package was a changing to the training regimen that recruits undergo. And that's because in the Taiwanese public, there's a lot of criticism of the kind of training that recruits undergo, uh, that they're wasting their time, it's not serious enough, 
They're not, you know, they're not actually being prepared to fight. There, there's lots of these horror stories that recruits are, you know, sweeping. They're spending their time sweeping or cutting grass instead of training. And so now their basic training is basically going to be almost doubled. There's going to be more live fire training. And with the conscription period being extended to a year, the army could see, you know, its uh, amount of conscripts increase by 100 to 200,000, right? Uh, but there are still a lot of criticisms of the policy from numerous people in Taiwanese society. And that's that's because, you know, the the country is still looking to a lot of people are still asking for a change to the overall kind of defense strategy that Taiwan will employ. How are you going to use these new conscripts? Are they just going to be used in your current plan, which is insufficient? Are you going to integrate them into what's called an asymmetric warfare strategy? In which is, for example, Ukraine has been employing to, you know, good success uh, after being invaded by Russia. Um, so these questions, it, it does really remain to be seen if the military here will be able to absorb these extra conscripts and utilize them well to improve the defense of Taiwan. But the last thing I'll say is that it definitely shows that um, and if we also couple this, for example, this year, Taiwan will increase its defense spending uh, by five billion U.S. dollars. It's, you know, a 25 percent increase. Um, and we can see that the country is definitely getting a lot more serious about its, its self-defense and national defense. Yet, yet this conscription program or the change in, in the conscription program will not be implemented until 2024. It seems why, why delay a year? Yeah, that's that's a great question is because the government promised that <laughs> they weren't going to make any changes too quickly. Um, and really, they did this to appease uh, sections of the public who are opposed to the plan, especially, you know, students who will be affected, as in high school students who will be affected, and their parents, right? Uh, so there was a promise to society that this change would be implemented. Um, it, it would They would take a delay to implement it, to not cause too sudden shifts, because... In Taiwan, it is expected, I don't know how it is in Ireland, but it is expected that when you graduate high school, you go to university. I think, you know, over 90% of high school graduates go to university in Taiwan. And, you know, this extension of military conscription will be very disruptive to the study plans of, you know, of, of boys in, in Taiwan. And so because of that, they wanted to delay it. And if, if in your question, you meant, you know, if you're if you're so afraid of a potential invasion, why why aren't you doing this as soon as possible? I would say it is because uh, authorities in Taiwan do not believe an invasion is imminent. Um, their national security officials have said numerous times over the last year that they do not expect an invasion to come, uh, you know, during the time before Tsai Ing-wen uh, leaves office, which will be in the beginning of 2024. Okay. Uh, so. Even though Joseph Wu and other U.S. officials, for example, have said that an invasion could possibly come in 2027, uh, the truth is that there's not a ton of evidence to their claims, and I don't think authorities here take it very seriously.
Yeah, that, that is a very good point and was going to be my next question, which uh, you very conveniently uh, led into. Uh, Foreign Minister Joseph, who in fact, yeah, he interviewed on Sky News. He said that he believes China may now be more likely to invade Taiwan to distract from leader Xi Jinping's uh, multiple domestic problems. Uh, he has a, a faltering economy. He's trying to restart from zero COVID. There's a property turndown, demographic decline. You know, the list is pretty long. Uh, so, what, what do you think the next year holds then for Taiwan, given this statement from the, uh, the foreign minister? Well, <laughs> I'll say that a lot of people disagree with uh, Foreign Minister Wu. I have to say that we have to think, what is his job, right? His job is to go out to the world and convince them to support Taiwan, because Taiwan is admittedly in a difficult diplomatic situation where it does not have official relations with any major powers, right? And that severely limits the kind of support that it can receive, right? So he has to go out there and convince publics and officials around the world that the threat is very real, right? But I'll, I'll have you notice that his language, his language is that, you know, the possibility has gone up. He's not saying that it is likely at all, right? I will also say, though, that a, a lot of uh, scholars have also said the opposite. They say that actually we're in a moment right now where it seems that there is a ever so slight, maybe not a reproachment, but a, a slowing down of, of or a, a, a slight, slight cooling down of tensions between the United States and China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is supposed to visit China very soon, um, you know, uh, Biden and, uh, you know, Chinese leader Xi Jinping had a, it seems, positive meeting uh, late last year. Um, and also, for example, the both sides came to an agreement about, you know, this is a very technical kind of piece of news, but they came to an agreement over auditing requirements for Chinese companies listed um, in U.S. stock markets, which most people believed was not going to be possible. And yet they did come to an agreement. So it seems that in many ways, there might be interest from leaders on both sides to actually reduce tensions. And so a lot of people are saying that actually the possibility of an invasion might be lower this year. That doesn't mean that it is lower over the next five or 10 years, but maybe just for next year. Um, But I think, yes, Joseph Wu, he's talking about the possibility of next year. Um, I think that's part of his job. Uh, I'm not sure I personally believe it so much, but it definitely, the overall trend is clear, which is that tensions are rising and that the the threat of some kind of military action against Taiwan uh, is definitely rising. So it's it's very likely then these air incursions and all this posturing will just continue to happen for the foreseeable future. I, I be- there is no way that the incursions will end. Um, This is something I really believe, again, this is my opinion. People might disagree with me. I think the incursions are a very big performative aspect of the cross-strait relationship, right? Which is that um, I I, I was speaking with with a well-known professor and political commentator here uh, the other day, and I was talking to him about, well, Beijing, I mean, they don't want to deal with the DPP. They don't like the DPP. They, They don't trust them. He said, you know, we don't know what kind of talks there might be going on um, behind the public view. We just don't know. And that's true. We, we know that there are lines of communication between officials on both sides um, that are not regularly publicized, right? And, he, and th- he brought up a point that I think is actually really interesting to think about, which is that 
these incursions are a huge political win for the DPP, right? If we're talking about Taiwanese domestic politics. And so why would China continue to do something that is helping, right, its supposed enemy, political enemy in, in Taiwan's domestic political scene? And I think that's really something interesting to think about and demonstrates the complexity of what is really going on, which is that there is the cross-strait relationship, there's the U.S.-China relationship, there's the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. And then in the middle of all of this, of course, is the very real agency of Taiwan itself and its you know, democratic political culture. Thought-provoking comments indeed from Itamar Waxman, who is a journalist at Radio Taiwan International in Taipei. My thanks to Itamar for joining us on Perspectives with Nilo, and you can follow him and check out his work on Twitter, at Itamar Waxman. We have also linked his information on our blog site, as well as some additional links and references for you to dive deeper into today's topic. You can find it at pwnilo.com. And don't forget, you can also follow Perspectives with Nilo on Spotify, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, that's it for the moment. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slánix Benacht. <laughs>